Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, and in the Money Cafe this week, I'm joined by Sam Gawenda, who is the Director and Senior Lending Specialist at Rising Tide Financial Services. G'day, Alan. G'day, Sam. Thanks for joining us in the cafe. Thanks for having me. Um, so the reason we're going to, we've got Sam in is because we thought it was a good idea to talk about um, what's going on with housing. Uh, Sam is a mortgage broker yep. and uh, is um, plugged into what's happening and how to go about it at the moment. So there's so many questions, so many uh, things happening, particularly with uh, housing affordability. I thought it'd be a good idea to get you in to talk about that, Sam. So firstly, um, uh, you must be seeing a lot of frustration of uh, clients who you know, come, to, come for the mortgage and can't afford a house. Is that, <laughs> is that what's going on? Yeah, look, I mean, frustration in a whole raft of different ways. Um, one is the the fact that it's it's sort of clients chasing their tail where thinking that they're going to have enough to get into the market and then getting blown out of the water at, at auction. Um, but a second, secondly, more from a lending point of view, just the process that people have to go through these days to get a loan. Yeah, what, what, what sort of process? What are we talking about? Um, so there's certainly more... And look, I guess in saying that, when you've got a first home buyer and it's their first time going through the process, I suppose um, they don't have a lot of previous experience to lean on. But when we are talking about client, talking with clients that have gone through the process before, there's just more boxes to tick than ever before. Um, banks have been put under more scrutiny um, and therefore they put uh, there's more scrutiny on every single application that goes through. And what a flow on to that is, it just makes timeframes blow out. Um, yeah. So, so t- tell us about. Let's start with the deposit, right? Yep. Um, uh, the the conventional wisdom is that twenty percent deposit is yep. required. Is that correct? I mean, if if you come along with less than twenty percent, will you still get a loan? Yeah. And how does it how does that play off against um, the um, mortgage insurance? Yeah, yeah. So, the the what I say the magical number in lending is is borrowing eighty percent of the property's value. So therefore, putting in twenty percent equity. Um, certainly there are a lo- uh, there are options for people that don't have that 20% deposit because, for example, as a first home buyer, if you're spending $600,000 on a property to, to save up the $120,000 um, is a tough feat, especially if you're renting. Um, so how mortgage insurance works is if you've got less than a 20% deposit, uh, you are seen I, I, what I say is a high risk and therefore the, the lender needs to take an insurance premium against you as a borrower. So a misconception is that the mortgage insurance covers the borrower, but it's actually covering the bank against any financial loss. But the borrower has to pay it. But the borrower has to pay it. So it's paid up front, it's a once-off payment, um, and that, lo- that loan is, is insured for its lifetime. Um, so and, to, and how much is it? Uh, so sliding scale. So it depends, the higher the percentage, so, so the less of a deposit you have as a percentage, i.e. if you've got a 15% or a 10% or even a 5%, that's a big factor, and also the loan amount. So the higher the loan amount, the the, the, the higher the loan percentage, the higher the premium. But to give you an idea, if it's a $600,000 property and you're borrowing at a 90%, you're probably looking at anywhere from 10 to $15,000 of mortgage insurance. Right, but that's less than the $60,000 that you would have to save. Because if you had sixty thousand, you save sixty thousand. You weren't going to get to one hundred and twenty. Yeah. Uh, you go. Okay, we'll go with ten percent deposit and mortgage insurance. The what did you say the mortgage insurance would cost? Let's say twelve. Twelve. Yep. So that's less than the extra sixty that you'd have to save to get to twenty percent deposit. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you're effectively you're borrowing those funds as well. So this is the thing. So if you've got a ten percent deposit, you're borrowing ninety percent 
of the value of the property. And then in some cases, you can put that mortgage insurance premium on top. So you're actually borrowing 90% plus the mortgage insurance. Right. Um, so, so the argument would be, or one argument would be is, if it's going to take you another two years to save you $60,000, you're actually 60000 what's the property going to go up by in that time? Therefore, do you, does that justify the $12,000 of mortgage insurance? Yep. And, and, uh, and then there's the stamp duty on top, right? So stamp duty. Okay. So, so, in, so in saying that, um, there are quite a few government schemes at the moment. So there's a couple of – so for first home buyers – where you can get into a property with less than a 20% deposit and avoid mortgage insurance. But those schemes are, are capped, right? There's, the federal government scheme was capped at 10,000 and then they had another 10,000, right? That's it. So there's cap, they're, they're, that's the FHA. And are they all gone? That's uh, scarce, scarce. It's a very convoluted process about how it's, it's, it's tough. Um, to, you've got to go on a waiting list, you get a reservation, you've got a certain time to buy. If you don't buy, it goes back into the pot and you miss out. So it's, it has been frustrating for, for people. Um, stamp duty, up to $600,000 purchase price in Melbourne Metro. You don't pay any stamp duty for a first home buyer. And then from six hundred dollars to $750,000, it's a, a, a and, and, reduced. And are those sort of schemes replicated in other states? Yep. Yeah, for right. sure. So each state has their own version of um, first home buyer benefits. Um, the FHLDS, as you said, is is federal. Um, so yeah, look, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, the other the other thing, Alan, I think um, is is worth mentioning as well is that those schemes are leaning on the government for support. But another common thing we're seeing is parents helping our kids getting into the market in a, you know with it being increasingly difficult. And what are the ways that parents are doing that? So common ways, the, probably the two most common ways we see is if parents are in a position to do so is gifting funds. So if, uh, if um, so a young couple have $60,000 saved and parents come in and say, we can gift you another 60000 that gets them to that 20%. But also um, baby boomers what we know is as a general rule, they've got a lot of equity in their property. They might not necessarily have the $60,000 sitting in cash, but they've got a significant amount of equity in their property. And, and there is things called parental guarantees as well. Um, so we, will that get you to a 20% yeah. deposit? So, how so, does that work? Yeah. So how that works is $600,000 property, client, applicants have $60,000 to put in. Another $60,000 is lent against the guarantor's property. So it's still a loan, it's still in the applicant's name, but it's secured by the equity in the parent's place. And that's separate to the 80% loan against the property they're buying. And then you borrow 80% against the property you're buying yourself. So you're at that magical 80% number. The bank's happy because their exposure is 80% or under, um, and the applicants have avoided mortgage insurance. Um, and what, what do you find is the most common way parents help, by cash or... Or guarantee? Yeah, look, I would say it's probably 50-50. Right. Cash is more straightforward. Um, in some ways, it's less risk for the guarantors. Um, where, um, where, as I said, not everyone has $60,000 lying around, but they still want to help their kids get into the market. So I would say of the clients we help that are getting family support, it'd be about 50-50 between those. Right. Yeah. And, and what about the different banks? I mean, how do you choose which bank uh, to go with? Yeah. Is it just the one paying the highest commission? <laughs> I wish. No, no, not true. Look, that's all been regulated. So commissions are flat across the board, which to be honest is a good thing because um, it means that as a mortgage broker, you are going in 
Um, and and it's and it's not that mortgage brokers, I would think, as a general, are, are, are making recommendations based on their commission. Well, I hope they're not. But now it just takes that conversation off the table. Um, so if the commission's flat, it doesn't matter. It doesn't anymore. matter. Yeah. yeah. Look, we go through a we go through a um, a a specific framework when we're choosing. So first we sit down with the, the client and we understand the position they're in and what they're trying to achieve. And when we're doing our loan research, we go through this framework. The first thing we look at is eligibility. Okay. So you could walk in, that, that client, that applicant that's looking to buy a $600,000 property with a 10% deposit, you could walk into bank A and they could say, no, we need a 15% or a 20% deposit, or we need your income to be more stable. And, or you could walk into bank B and they go, yeah, no worries, that's easy. The problem is when people are doing the research themselves, they walk into bank A first, they think they can't get a loan and they give up. Coming to a, Working to a mortgage broker, you know, we've got 40 different lenders on our panel and each lender has a set, different set of lending policy. So first is eligibility. Second is, is process. So some lenders are taking, there's, there's, there's one of the majors at the moment which is taking over 30 days just to pick up and assess an application. That's business days, let alone actually approving it. Crikey. So, yeah. So you imagine you're trying to go to auction. Or you, yeah, well, it's just, it's, it's. Which one's that? Can't, I don't, <laughs> the blue one. So. All <laughs> oh, right, the blue one. Um, and, uh, and so we go through that, we go through process. We want to make sure that if, if someone wants to go to auction in three weeks time, we want to make sure that we can get them the approval in three weeks time. And then the final one is, uh, is, is product. So they're what we're talking about, interest rates, features. We have a, we have a two, two year old who's bashing the, t- I the think he's telling me to be quiet, stop talking about banks. Um, so, yeah, then the final thing we're looking at from there, if we've got banks that meet the eligibility tests, their processes are good at the moment, um, then, we're, then we're breaking down to features and products and interest rates and things like that. My kids have been in the market looking for, looking for housing, going to mortgage brokers, and they always seem to end up with a CBA or NAB. I mean, theory, theoretically, mortgage brokers should, uh, uh, provide opportunities for small banks. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. from around the country to, yeah. to get customers. In fact, what seems to happen is they it's always up. the majors. Mm. Is that true? Do you, do you end up mostly uh, in the, with the majors? We don't. Um, uh, at, and look, we're, you know, in the scheme of things, we're a pretty small sample size. We help out about 200 client groups a year, um, attain finance. If I'm, often, it's, it can be the path to least resistance. So if you're sitting down with a client, that client knows CBA, they've probably banked with them forever. As a mortgage broker, sometimes it can be easier presenting CBA rather than a bank that the clients maybe never have heard of. Um, but certainly, look, we've got very strict regulation, best interest duty, which came in um, Jan 1 this year. And we've, there's, our, our files are audited and we need, to, we need to substantiate why Commonwealth Bank is in that client's best interest. Um, and there's a significant process that has to go through. Um, so interest rate is a factor. Turnaround times, eligibility. It might be that the client um, has always banked with CBA and are desperate to stay there, but any recommendations made has to be um, has to has to meet the best interest duty regulations. So, can yeah. you can you tell us um, wh- which are the banks that are easiest to get a loan at at the moment? Really, um, 
every situation's different. I don't want to sound like I'm skirting around the, the, the um, question there, dancing around, Alan, but every situation is so unique. So if you're self-employed and you've, uh, your business has had JobKeeper income over the last couple of years, there's one or two banks that are really uh, liberal in their policy around JobKeeper income, whereas other banks will say no. So it, it, it's very circumstantial to the client situation. Um, but uh, look, there are some great lenders. So to, to name a few, if you're a pretty straight down the line situation, Macquarie are a really great lender from a process, from a, an application process point of view. ING, um, we do a significant amount of, of uh, recommendations to those two lenders, but it's all about the client situation dictates the lenders that we're recommending. And, and what about uh, variable versus fixed? Yep. One of the questions I presume people ask you, what, yep. um, what are you saying at the moment? The first, my standard, I've been doing this for 13 years and my standard answer is I don't have a crystal ball because we can't, we can't predict what's happening. Um, but my advice to people, firstly, before you're making a decision on variable and fixed, you've got to understand the characteristics of them. It's not just about the interest rate. As a, so at a high level, variable is it's, it's flexibility. So you could take a variable loan out today and you could pay it out tomorrow with no early exit fees or deferred establishment fees or anything like that. Where with fixed, once you lock in, you're agreeing to, to that loan for that period of time, normally two or three years. If you want to pay that loan out early or make extra payments, um, you could trigger what's called a break cost, which can be a significant fee to do so. So first you've got to understand what, um, what your plan is in the short term um, with that loan. Um, so, but yeah, you can't have offset accounts with a fixed loan as well. People love offset accounts. You can, as a general rule, you can only get those on variable. Um, but to give you an idea, fixed rates have recently been trending upwards where variable's been trending down. So at the moment, you're getting a variable rate for someone buying a home loan, say two to two and a half, um, where your fixed rates are now, again, it really depends on the lender and the term, but you're more talking about two and a half upwards, um, where... Two, two, two months ago, you'd be looking at under 2% for fixed rates. Yes, I know. And yeah. The, um, fixed rates have been going up yeah. faster. And in fact, there's almost no fixed rates under 2% now, are there? Uh, from off the top of my head, no. No. Yeah. But there are a few variable rates under 2%. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but uh, obviously, uh, interest rates are due to go up. Yeah. I mean, that's why fixed rates are going up is because the bond market is anticipating higher interest rates and starting to starting to move up. Um, so what, what do you reckon is going to happen when interest rates do go up, uh, whether it's next year or the year after? Mm. Uh, how much of an interest rate increase do you think most of your clients and other you know, first-time buyers, those people, will be able to bear? Yeah, really great question. Um, when, a bank, when a bank assesses someone's eligibility for a loan, they use an assessment rate. And that assessment rate has just increased recently. Um, so at the moment, the, and, and again, they vary from lender to lender, but you're looking at, let's call it 5.5% as an assessment rate. So you apply and the bank is saying that based on your current situation, you can afford this loan at a 5.5% interest rate. My take on it, what that looks like, and, and in reality at the moment you're paying say 2 to 2.5%. In reality... For people in my demographic, what demographic? What I see is a lot of discretionary spend. So my take would be, and for me, it's that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 
married with three young kids and I've got a large mortgage. And if rates went up, if they jumped up by a percent tomorrow, um, then I would need to, to curb some of that discretionary spending, um, sitting in a cafe having <laughs> avocado on toast. Um, but I believe that, that Australians do have, um, there's a fair bit of fat, as a general rule, there's a fair bit of fat in, in our lifestyles that we can... Because you guys also do financial planning. Do you help people organise their budgets and, and save some money? That's a part of it, for sure. Um, a big part of what we do, I guess, um, as mortgage brokers, it's our role to help people get into debt. And the financial planners, their role is to get them out of debt. So right. there's a lot about cash flow and budgeting, um, strategies, you know, the, the, the traditional way of paying, of, of reducing your home loan is just to make extra payments, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the quickest way. So working with clients on strategies and investments to, you know, with hopefully clear that mortgage and, and save you interest. Yeah. I think it's time to move on to the questions now, okay. Sam. We've got a few, and one or two of them are up your alley, so that's good. I think the first one from Dennis is uh, potentially for you. Hi, Alan. Thanks for a great podcast. I've been listening from the beginning, and it was a nice surprise to find out my wonderful cousin Greg helps out with the show. This is Greg, this is your cousin Dennis. There you go. <laughs> Greg's the producer, everybody, who puts this all together and publishes it. Now, my question is around, or comment, is around what we're calling the housing affordability crisis. I'd like to get your thoughts on whether or not it's an affordability crisis or simply the banks being too keen to lend by potentially overestimating the future value of Australian land. Looking at recent figures for what a couple early 30s and on average salaries can lend with just, or presumably means borrows, with just a 10% deposit compared to last year, it's no surprise that house prices are only going up. Did you, do you see this as something that needs to be managed uh, as it only makes it harder for first-time buyers. Do you, do you understand what he's on about? I, I, yeah, I, I think the question, I, what I take from the question is the easier that lending gets, the more availability that, uh, yeah, the more availability of lending, that's a big impact on the prices on going the, up. On, on the price of houses, and, obviously. Yeah, and, and as we spoke about earlier, yeah, so he's mentioned 10%. Well, there's government schemes where you can get into the market with 5%. Or if you've got a guarantor, you can get in with ultimately with no deposit at all. Um, so, and you, you, I know when I talked to my parents back in the day, you had to have a 50% deposit and they wouldn't even take the second um, income. They wouldn't, if the wife was working, for example, they wouldn't take her income as a part of the application. So lending has certainly got a lot more liberal over the years and that's certainly had an impact on prices. Yeah. In fact, uh, it's often occurs to me that um, whereas most assets that you buy as an investment, uh, you can you can actually value according to the cash flow that they produce, whether it's a share or an investment property or whatever, you value them according to the multiple of the of the profit yeah. in a share. You, you, the valuation is price earnings ratio and you can come up with a value and you can compare with other values and so on. But the only way you can value a house is by how much you can borrow. Like there's no... A house mm. that you live in has no value, you know, because it doesn't make money for you. It's not an asset. Yeah. So how do you value a house? The answer is by what you can afford to pay, I'd suggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's an interesting way of looking at it. There's no, uh, there's no real objective way to value a house yeah. apart from comparisons, of course. Yeah. Um, so when a valuer comes in, he'll value, he'll go, oh, yeah, well, that one sold down there for that and this one, so therefore your place is worth, yeah. worth X. Yeah. But really, they're all in the same. They're all being valued in the same way, which is that people are buying 
and paying for houses what they can afford to pay. And you know, and, and I think an interesting point here is it is that valuer that comes in and looks, it is very subjective. And I've got a recent example of this, which I think is is pertinent, is so we're um, we're currently putting a pool in in our backyard and, and we had to do some borrowing for that pool. Concrete pools are expensive, Alan. I don't know if you've ever built one. Um, but we got a valuer in and they came in at a certain valuation. And then I thought, nah, that's not realistic. I got another valuer in from a different firm a couple of weeks later, $200,000 difference from valuer one to valuer two. Which, and that was the difference in me being able to borrow because I've got more equity. So, um, and, and what was interesting, the first valuer came out and he had a certain opinion about our backyard and the next valuer loved it. So there's so much. Um, right. It's it, yeah. There's so much. Um, it's so subjective onto the individual who, exactly. as you said, it's it, all about the individual subjective values. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, Mark says, "Hi, Alan. What are your thoughts on recent meme stocks, particularly in the US, like GameStop, AMC Entertainment, and UWM Holdings?" Uh, well, the only thing I'd say, Mark, uh, I don't have much of a view. I'd just say that there's always been meme stocks. There's never been not. There's never not been meme stocks. And I look back to 1970 when I started as a financial journalist, the meme stock at the time was Poseidon Nickel. And uh, when I started, it was $350. Wow. And it immediately crashed. And the other meme stock was Flinders Mines. I mean, uh, you know, in the, in the 2000s, well, in the 80s, meme stock was Quintex, mm. which was Christopher Scase's business. Uh, Alan, you know, Bond Corporation, Alan Bond's company, Robert Holmes Accord's company, Bell Group. There were, there were meme stocks then. And then in the 2000s, there was all of the uh, tech stocks like Yahoo. Um, what else? Um, AO, AOL. Yeah. Yeah, rings a bell. So look, there's always meme stocks. Uh, they always come and go. But, you know, that's just part of, the, part of the game, part of what it's all about. Another meme stock at the moment is Bitcoin. Let's face it. Yeah. It's not a stock, but it's certainly a meme thing. You can read, a, you can read the next one. Okay. Yeah. From Jenny. Hi, Alan. Just wondering what everyone's thoughts are on APA now that it has acquired an interest in the debt of Nexus Australia management. Do you think it would be a reasonable income stock to buy? I was also wondering if you think it might be a good time to buy PHP. Okay. Uh, my answer on APA is that, yes, it's a reasonable income stock to buy. Uh, I don't know much about the acquisition of the debt of Nexus Australia Management. I really haven't looked at that, so I can't comment on that. But uh, there's nothing wrong with APA. Um, I, I'm not. A, I haven't analysed it. I'm not recommending it. Um, but you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. BHP. Uh, well, I think that the, I think the divestment of the, um, of its petroleum division to Woodside is a good deal for BHP. I think they're. Um, Shareholders are going to do well out of that because it's going to free up a lot of franking credits. I also think that the iron ore price is probably bottoming around about now. So uh, this might be a good time to buy BHP. There you go. I'm not touching that one. He's Alan. not touching that, everyone. <laughs> Ian says, hello, Alan and VIP guest. You are a VIP guest. Thank there, you very Sam. much. I enjoyed Thank the 7.30 report housing special crisis you did, ex except for Peter Costello and Jason Valinsky, of course. Well, that's a bit harsh, but anyway, is there footage on the cutting room floor of you challenging Falinski's stupid home first super second garbage? Call me old-fashioned, but I don't see how driving house prices up while destroying super will make housing more affordable. There are sadly quite a few competitors, but housing must rank among the greatest domestic policy failures of our lifetime. 
Happily renting, by the way. Happily renting. There you go. Well, Ian, um, uh, I'm not sure Jason Valinsky was all about at home for a super second. That was Tim Wilson's slogan. He's the member for Goldstein and was the chair of that same committee that Falinski's now chair of, which is the Tax and Revenue Committee. Um, I, I don't think, I haven't, look, you may be right that Falinski said that as well, but I, certainly what um, uh, Wilson's been on about. And it's more an attack on superannuation and the industry super funds than some sort of idea that housing should go up. But I agree with you that it's a ridiculous idea that, um, you know, driving house prices up is going to be, uh, uh, going to be good for housing and, and somehow somehow attacking super is good for anybody so yes do you agree sam what do you think i think so i um i am not all over that alan i have to admit so oh well yeah um adam's got a long question about uh, what happens if there's a large-scale cyber attack uh on um the uh the uh, share ownership software chess statements which uh um and i really don't know adam sorry uh, yeah, I mean, what would happen if all the share registries were unable to retrieve their data? Um, how would people prove their ownership of equities? Fair question. I don't know the answer to that. No. don't know. Mark says, Hi, Alan. Just listening to the podcast that featured Graham's question about the risks of hydrogen getting to the upper atmosphere. I'm an engineer with a lot more chemistry than Graham. Hydrogen is very reactive. In our atmosphere, it reacts to, with oxygen to produce water. And that's it. It's very safe. The issues with hydrogen as a fuel are, as James said, more to do with production and storage than damage to the atmosphere. Yeah, look, I thought about that at the time, Mark. I didn't want to get into it because my chemistry is probably uh, less than Graham's and certainly less than yours. So it's great to get your input there, Mark. Thank you very much. And uh, finally, a correction from Ramnish, who says that James Thompson uh, last week mentioned that... um, Macquarie's SPP share price would be the greater of 191 or 2% discount of volume weighted average share price and he thought it was worth correcting that the share price is the lower of the two, not the greater of the two. So that is uh, worth having. Thank you very much Ram Nish. Great to have that. And uh, thanks everyone for listening to today's episode of Money Cafe with Sam Gawenda, Director and Lending Specialist at Rising Tide Financial Services. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for coming in, Sam. Coming into the cafe. It's been great. Cheers. And thanks, everyone, for listening to today's Money Cafe. Send in your questions uh, to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au and we'll get to it next week. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report, and I've been with Sam Gawenda, Director and Seniors Lending Specialist at Rising Tide Financial Services. 